What do CEOs need to know about sales these days? A lot. Outdated sales strategies and tactics plague most companies today. Listen to what innovative CEOs and experts have to say about how to change all that with Sales Talk for CEOs. Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. Gosh, it's the holidays and things are busy. And as CEOs, as great as our lives are, it sometimes feels chaotic and a bit overwhelming in a good way most of the time. And then sometimes we feel like, well, we're in hell. Not a good feeling. My guest today wrote a book on that. Why it feels wonderful at times and a bit hellish at times as well. She is a contributor to Good Morning America, the Today Show. You've got to watch her on. She's just fantastic on live TV. Harvard Business Review, Oprah. Laura has been in the Wall Street Journal. She's a best-selling author of a book called Wonder Hell, which we'll be talking about in another book called Limitless. And her 30-year resume is defined by her entrepreneurial edge. She served as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House, helping shape AmeriCorps. She left a leadership role at a respected national search firm to expand a tech startup and founded, ran, and sold her own global search firm. So she knows, CEOs, what it's like to be a founder, an owner, and to actually sell the business as well. So she has done some amazing things, but we're going to jump right into it. The last thing I want to say about Laura is her secret power is seeing your greatness and reflecting it back on you so that you can get unstuck and achieve extraordinary results. Laura, I am delighted to have you on the show today. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for that kind introduction. I'm so excited to be here, Alice. Yeah. Well, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening. Um, some are just starting their entrepreneurial journey. Some are three or four times entrepreneurs. And some have been in the same business they founded for 10 or 20 years. And they just really love hearing from other entrepreneurs about their journey, as well as things that they can do in their own lives to just make everything better. Because you and I both know that if you're life is good, your business can be good as well. So yeah, let's start off just talking about Wonder Hell. What is it and why on earth did you decide to write a book about it? Well, I wrote Wonder Hell because I found myself in it. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm a speaker, I'm an author, I travel around the country, around the world, giving speeches to conferences, to companies, to, 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 uh, all sorts of people. And, uh, it's a pretty lonely job. So I am now the CEO of Laura Gassner Odding, as opposed to being the CEO of a company that I founded, I built, I sold, uh, but the similarities are the same. Like you're still alone. You're still the one at the top. The buck stops with you. And so I know how lonely it can be for for entrepreneurs out there. I wrote Wonder Hell because I had I had written another book before that called Limitless, and I had worked my 
behind off to get limitless out. Like I had no platform. I didn't know anybody. I, I, I just, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, I'm going to make this happen. And so I wrote limitless and I threw everything I had into it. And that book debuted at number two on the Washington post bestseller list. Wow. Now that's important. That's important because I was on a red eye flying home from uh, Vancouver, where I was speaking at a conference for like 2,500 people where I was opening for Malala, like Malala, Malala. And so I'm so tired from all the work that it took to launch this book that I had left the part of my brain that dictates my humility, like in the waiting lounge in Vancouver. And I'm on this red, I like sandwiched in between these two giant linebackers. And I, and I'm looking through, I'm flipping through my phone at the selfies that I took with Mia Malala, which by the way, are her looking like super wise and, you know, totally put together and me looking like the troll under the bridge. So I'm like, Oh my God, it's Malala. Right. So um, I'm looking at the, the, the selfies and I get a text from, my publisher saying your book just debuted at number two on the Washington Post bestseller list right behind Michelle Obama. And my first thought, I am not embarrassed to say now, but I was embarrassed in the moment to say was number two. I wonder what it takes to be number one. Right. And it was in that moment that I had to admit to myself, I think I want more right. Like it's amazing. It's exciting. It's wonderful to achieve this thing. I never even thought was possible. Like, the Washington Post bestseller list right behind Michelle Obama, amazing. And also, as I peeked through the doors of that achievement, I saw number one right in front of me. And I'm like, how do I get to be there? What does it take? And then I was filled with like imposter syndrome and anxiety and uncertainty and doubt and envy and exhaustion and burnout. And I was like, oh, it's kind of horrible. Like now I'm stuck with the burden of my potential. Like I'm two, I could be one. It's so close. Maybe if I just worked a little harder. And so I opened up my laptop, having not been able to fall asleep on this flight, because again, see two giant linebackers leaning on me. And I wrote this screed of a Facebook post where I was like, if they say, if you can name it, you can tame it. And I was like, that's nonsense. If you can name it, you can claim it. Like maybe what if I admitted that I wanted more? Maybe what if I admitted that I wanted to embrace this potential? potential that I had. Maybe I can go for it. Like, I don't know where you are right now, but I'm in wonder hell. It's incredible. It's where all your dreams come true. And my publisher texted, not for nothing, but that would make a great name of your next book. And I didn't really do anything with it because I was so busy doing the promotion of Limitless after that. The, the, that post kind of went viral and people took it on, and I, but I didn't do anything with it. And then the pandemic hit. Uh, and the pandemic hit and I went live to my community uh, every single morning. And within about three weeks, I got pretty bored of my own voice. So I was like, I'm going to bring in other people I know. So I started bringing in all these interesting people that I met in the green room. Didn't quite get Malala, although I did invite her. Um, uh, I, I would bring in these interesting people and we would have conversations about the moment for them when everything changed. And, and, and we kept coming back to this moment where they sort of embraced who they wanted to become. And then thanks to Facebook memories this memory pops up and I was like, oh, that's the moment. We've all had this moment of wonder hell where we realized who we can become and it has fundamentally shifted everything that we wanted and the energy force inside of us. So I wrote wonder hell because I found myself in it and I needed to find a way out of it. And then I realized I wasn't in the end actually alone. We were kind of all in wonder hell together. Yes, we are all in wonder hell together at different moments in our life, right? And I love that that moment. And I 
I've been there squished behind the, between those linebackers, right? On the plane. And it's interesting that we kind of blow by the success that we have by being intrigued by what more we could have, right? And I think that happens to all of us. It's like, oh, I'm number two, but I could be number one. What would I have to do? What would it take? But I know you believe this and I believe it too, because I've seen it. If we can pause for a moment in our wonder hell place and say, wow, what got us to here? How, do, how does that feel? And can we soak in all the goodness and the good stuff we have before we blow right by it to what's next? But not only that, use it as momentum to get to what's next. Yes, for sure. So I, I used to think like, okay, done. We finished the project. We sold the deal. We're on to the next thing. Let's go. And, and I never stopped to congratulate myself, congratulate my team, take a moment to rest, take a moment to inventory what worked, what didn't work. And when, when I ran my company, when we started having like a, a forced pause after we finished each project, we're like, there were actually some checkpoints on the to-do list for every four to six month project of what has to happen in closeout. We actually created a closeout phase of every single project. It fundamentally shifted the way that we approached the next project and the next project and the next project after that. So there's two quick stories that I'll tell. The first is from someone I don't know, although I heard she read Wonder Helen. I really want to know what she thinks. Serena Williams, um, what, which is crazy. Uh, when I read about how she would practice, she wouldn't just go out on the court and practice the shots she got wrong in the last match. She would go out on the court and she practiced the one she got right too, in order yeah. to make sure she was grooving the pattern. Because sometimes we'll go give a big presentation in front of a client when we're you know doing sales and we're like, oh, that worked. I kind of screwed up a little bit here. I kind of screwed up a little bit there. Let me go work on that. And then the next time we go give a presentation, we're like, oh, that worked kind of screwed up a little here, kind of screwed up a little there, but it's different stuff because we never take time to make sure that the stuff we got right, we didn't just get right by accident, right? And the only reason, the only way to make sure that we're grooving the pattern of what works is to practice the stuff that didn't work, but also the stuff that did. So that's the first piece. And then the second, the, the second piece is um, I did an executive search once for a guy in there, Larry Fish. And Larry Fish was the CEO of Citizens Bank, which was the largest bank at the time in New England. And he, when I, the first time I met him, he said, you know, Laura, he goes, I start every Monday morning off by writing a thank you note to one of my employees. And I was like, every Monday morning, like you write a thank you note every, every morning. And he's like, Laura, I have 1200 employees. If I cannot find one to be grateful to for something they did. I am not paying attention. And he said, when I do this, I not only tell them what's good so that they remember to do it more often, I remind myself about what I care about and what matters to me so that I become much more intentional about that practice also. So I'm thanking them, but I'm also reminding myself. And so I think this process of stopping and observing and reminding ourselves what what we've accomplished, how well we did, is a great grounding for what we actually care about, about what's coming next. Yeah, I I really work on that with CEOs. And I love hearing that story of a CEO who wrote a note every day. I recommend that as well. I think it's a great way to remind yourself that there is someone in your company doing something right at every moment of the day. But unfortunately, our brains are wired to focus on the negative, right? Yes. 
And so with that kind of wiring, which of course helped us survive and become the, the humans that we are today, right? But we have to sort of rewire. And I think that kind of activity helps us rewire by writing a note of thanks to someone who did something well. You know, gratitude journals, things like that help us. But I think that CEOs who wear so many hats, right, and have so much to do and do want to get to the next thing, you know, they want to double in size, they want to buy that company, they want to, you know, do that next thing. They, I think that they need to take a word of advice from you and your book in terms of pausing, reflecting, and using what was done well and practicing it. I just see so many times leaders of every type focusing on what we're doing wrong and not focusing on what we're doing right. So I love that Serena Williams does that. I love that you mentioned practice what you did well so you can do it again. Yeah, the um the in the Marines they have a saying that is um slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And I love that because we think if we think if we just go faster we'll be more effective and the truth is we often have to slow down in order to be strategic, right? There's um I was listening to uh, my friend Josh Linkner who's a business author and speaker the other day. And he was like, look, he's like, I spent a lot of time in the early part of my career trying to have speed and speed is just moving really fast. He's like, now in the later part of my career, I'm turning my attention from speed to velocity. Speed is moving really fast, but velocity is speed towards a specific destination, right? So where are you going? With what are you doing? Yes. With intention. And that's actually why the, the, if we could get woo woo for a second, it's why manifestation works. So I thought manifestation was BS. I was like, that's ridiculous. You write something on your vision board. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're not making the, you know, the sale happen. You're not making the flight to Japan happen. And then I did some research on it. And the research that I did said that, um, our brains take in 11 million bits of data every single second, 11 million bits, but they could, our brains can only process 50 right? So 11 million to 50 is a pretty big reduction. Yeah. We think we have five senses, smell, sight, hearing, et cetera, touch. Um, but we actually have like 53. So there's like proprioception, like how do you stand in your balance and thermoception? What's the temperature in the room? Like there's 53 different senses. So if we are intentional about what we care about, we tell our brain of the 11 million bits of data, take these 50 out and tell me about them. So people can make their own luck by being much more intentional about what they care about, the kinds of opportunities they want their brains to see. Like if you, you know, if, if, if you are saying just this year, I want to get into a mastermind with my peers, then you're telling your brain by writing it down, by being intentional, by sending thank you notes to people who are in masterminds or who are giving you advice. When something comes across the transom about this mastermind that you might not have noticed, you will pay attention to it, right? So we're making our own luck. It's not just, oh, I manifested that to happen. No, it's, it's the intentionality by being slow, by being smooth and not just being fast and trying to grab everything, but just actually stopping and thinking. So I often tell CEOs that the, the, the highest and best use of your time is to do what only you can do. Yes. So if you look at your to-do list and your email list and your, and your calendar, whatever is on that list that somebody else can do shouldn't be on yours. So when I was CEO, I was the head salesperson, right? Like you just are. I was the head culture person. I was the head salesperson. I was the head quality person. There were some sales that didn't need me. 
but my ego put me in the room because I was like, felt good, dopamine, boom, we got the sale, I feel great. There were some sales that would not have happened but for the fact that I was there. Some of those sales were huge, like trajectory shifting moments for our company. Some of those sales were smaller, but they would mean good future money. Like that, that, that CEO search I told you about for the head of the bank, that was a tiny little search. But that guy was on the board of every single you know, institution of merit in the Boston area. So what do you think we got out of that? We got 10 more searches. So the thinking through, it's not just attaching yourself to the biggest deals and the shiniest objects, but what are the things that won't happen but for the fact that you were there, like you are in the room? What is the highest and best use of your time? Run fast at those things. But the rest of it is just a lot of excess heat loss. Yeah, I, I think it's hard sometimes to decide, right? But I love talking to CEOs about being in their genius zone. It's the work of Gay Hendricks. He wrote about mm -hmm. it in The Big Leap. And then some of his colleagues wrote another book called Genius Zone. And really taking the time. And again, you got to slow down to do this, right? Um, so thinking about the things that really light you up the things that you could do all day, the things that make you feel good, fill you up and don't drain you, right? And looking at what those are and how you can apply them to your business and making sure that you have the time to do those things and do them well. And like you said, get everything else off your plate. Now, that's absolutely impossible, right? But work towards it. And that way, and especially in sales, which you and I both know is something CEOs absolutely must pay attention to and must always have a role in. But what is your role in sales at this time in the history of your company? And yeah. how can you best fit that role? Not jump into every deal and not jump in and try to save the day, you know, and all of that, right? Yeah, there's a story that I tell in Wonder Hell. So Wonder Hell is sort of shaped around an amusement park because we think success is gonna be super fun. We're gonna to go to all the rides and go to all the towns and eat all the food. And then suddenly we find ourselves and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and we're, 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 we're dehydrated and our kids are whining and we're like the, the, the corn dog that we stress ate before we got on the roller coaster isn't agreeing with the cotton candy that we're having now. Like it doesn't feel good. It feels like a little bit of an amusement park. It's a little terrifying. So, you know, there's imposter town, Doubtsville and Burnout City. There's a story that I tell in Burnout City about a CEO, uh, an entrepreneur named Ann McFerrin. And Ann McFerrin created Glamnetic. Glamnetic are like the glamorous magnetic lashes that all these women are wearing, right? It's like magnetic eyeliner and then like magnet anchors that like get stuck, you know, on the um, you know, on the lashes. So you suddenly have lashes. Ann McFerrin founded this company and thought, if I just make ten thousand dollars a month, I'm gonna be set. It's gonna be amazing. And then the first month she did $20,000, second 40, then 60. She is selling $50 million of magnetic lashes every single year. Her lashes are in every Sephora around the world. But for the first two years she ran this company, she was doing a million dollars a month. She is sitting in her studio apartment in Koreatown in LA, uh, DMing with all the customers, taking all the videos, editing the videos herself, uh, shipping, sending, like all packaging, all the lashes. She looks around, she's like, maybe I should get an assistant, right? Like she was doing everything. And now she says, the most important thing I can do, like I, I am the visionary. I'm the one who creates all the different lash designs. I'm still the face of the company. I'm still the one in all the videos. But the most important thing I can do for this country, this, this company is to be in charge of culture. 
If I am the head culture officer and I make sure everybody is happy, I make sure everybody understands the quality that we're going for, I make sure everybody understands what their goals are and what their personal role is in getting there, they will do more work than I could possibly do myself. And when she pulled herself out of the day-to-day, she still goes to enough meetings to sort of know what's going on, but she's like, I have two roles, chief visionary, face of the brand, and chief culture officer. And with that, like she says, I... I'm more upset if I get a bad morale report than if I get a bad culture or if I get a bad sales report. But frankly, $50 million of lashes every single month, she's not getting a bad sales report ever. So I think when she thought about what is the highest, best use of my time, it was really scary because it meant she had to take herself out of some deal. She had to take herself out of some meetings and she had to accept that there was going to be a few bumps along the road. There are going to be a few failures and not and have the discipline to not jump back in immediately and, and cut the legs out from her team, but allow them to use that not as you know finale moments, but as fulcrum moments where they could learn and they could grow and they can iterate and they can innovate. That's hard. I mean, when I was the CEO, it was very difficult for me to step back, especially handing off client relationships and be like, okay, I hope it's going to be good. So I had to figure out how do I know if it's working? What are the what are the benchmarks we need to hit? And I don't want to know if we're one degree off course in a week. I wonder if we're one degree off course in a day, right? Because if one degree off course and you're going from Boston to New York, not that big of a deal. You'll sort of hit New Jersey and then you'll be able to get yourself to New York. But if you're one degree off course and you're going from Boston to LA, you're going to find yourself in South America by the time you get there, right? Like it's 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 so you you need to figure out where the inflection moments are before you get to the crisis moments. Yes, yes. And that is absolutely, I think, key. Avoiding those crisis moments takes this kind of planning, takes and predicting And predicting when you are going to feel crisis. Because like, as a CEO, I had a team member once who was like, Laura, I don't understand why you're upset. Our client's happy. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> our client's happy because the work you gave them was 10% better than the crap the last people did. It's still crap. It's just 10% better than the crap they had before. Like their, their idea of what was success was different than my idea of what was success. So I needed to know that I had to check in earlier. I had to check in before they were in crisis. I had to check in when I felt like I might've been in crisis, right? So I had to know where their moments were, where the client's moments were, but also where my moments were so that I didn't jump in like house on fire, you're screwing this up. I had to jump in and be like, okay, seems like things are maybe not proceeding as well as they could. You know, what do you need? What do you need to get there? And by the way, what do you need is a very specific question, which is very different than how can I help? And I think- being able to ask the question that way in a way that empowers your team so that they become the hero as opposed to how can I help? I'm the hero. I'm the one who's always helping you. What do you need? How do you get better for the next time? It's very different. Very different question. And I, I do think that that's the difference between a, a good CEO and a great CEO, right? Two of the things that you said, asking the right questions, right? But also noticing your when you're going to be, like you said, at that moment of crisis, right? So knowing yourself well, so that you could be the best you can be, helps everyone else on your team. Yes. And I like what, you know, the Lash Lady, you know, talked about the things that were most important to her. What When she really peeled everything else away, here it is. I need mm-hmm. to be the face of the company and I need to be in charge of culture. And I think every CEO out there listening 
needs to boil it down, boil it down because you cannot do everything and you want to do the great things, but all of those other things are going to hold you back. You know, before we started recording, you and I were talking about a book by Dan Sullivan that I, I really highly recommend everyone read. It's called 10X is Easier Than 2X. And, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, how is that possible? Well, you've mentioned a lot of the ways that it's possible, right? One, you know, slowing down to look and understand and, you know, really being able to know what you're good at and eliminating things. And in the book, he talks about the many, many things you're going to have to eliminate. In fact, you're going to probably have to eliminate 80% of the things you do as a CEO to really be able to 10X because you're going to have to focus, focus, focus on the things that you're really good at and your company's really good at and just push the rest of the side. But as you and I both know, this is not easy, right? It is not easy at all. There's another great book by Dan Martell called Buy Back Your Time. And he talks a lot about how there's sort of this moment where there's there's like a ceiling. And if a CEO doesn't figure out how to buy back their time so that they can do what only they can do, right? Like nobody else at Glamnetta could be in charge of culture. Nobody else at Glamnetta right. can be the visionary. The highest and best use of her time was to do what only she could do. But that means you cannot keep like, let me just cobble on more stuff. Every time that we grow, I get to the next wonder how I'm just going to put more stuff in my backpack because eventually you like turtle shell over and the backpack, you know, you, you drown with it. So Dan says, you know, you sort of get to this point And for some people, it's like the $10 million mark. For some, it's the 50. For some, it's like getting to that 100 where unless you offload pieces of what you do to people who you trust, who you train and trust, you will never get past that. It doesn't matter how hard you work, how much nose to the grindstone, how much shoulder to the wheel, how hard you hustle, it does not matter. You will never get past it because you you are you are uh, con you are constrained by your own lack of scalability. Like we just we only have so many hours in the day. So um it, it is it is really hard and it takes uh it takes an understanding I think of what you are best at what other people could do. I think it also takes an honest conversation about where your ego sits. So, yeah. you know, there were certain things that I did when I was a CEO. There's certain things I do now as CEO that I shouldn't be doing, but I just love them. They bring me joy and they, they solve my ego. They make me feel good. And I need to limit them. Like there's like, I have like a, like if I was looking at my time as a pie chart, like 10% of my stuff is like the joy and ego, right? Like I should not be, doing my own social media. That's just stupid. I shouldn't do it. It doesn't make any sense. Like there are people who do it. There are people who do it better than I do. And yet I do like reading the messages from people who tell me I'm great because I'm an egomaniacal princess. So I like to do that, but like, could I have somebody who just sends me that list once a week? Yes. But I just like the little hits of joy. I just like it. I also feel like the people who tell me that I'm stupid and I'm terrible and I'm a fat, ugly troll or all the things that people say on Instagram, I I like to see those also because it helps me understand like what messages hit, what messages piss people off, like where to, like, not that I have message whim, but it just helps me understand a little bit more about sort of like where my messages are going. So I feel like in some way, some of that stuff gets filtered when it comes through somebody else. But because it also, I, I like it and I, I like the ego stroking of it, I, I do keep that. That said, I don't do any of my own finances. I don't do the PL. I don't do the bookkeeping. Like all that stuff doesn't make any sense. Even if I was slow right now, I would not bring that back in house because I'm not good at math. I'm great at words. That's what I do. I know how to do math. I, I, I built my own Excel spreadsheet, super 
complicated coding to like create this whole dashboard of metrics by which I run my company. I like doing that. I'm a little nerdy, but that to me is like system building, not day-to-day -day bookkeeping. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you put it. When you look at the total pie of things that you have to do yeah. as a CEO, yeah, carve out a little 10% to do, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I really like it a lot because right. I'm the same way you are with my social media. I really like to interact with people. I'm a very social being. I'm very extroverted and I get a lot out of that. I get filled up from talking to people online, just as I do about talking to them in person. But yeah, it can't consume you, right? And I, right. I think we find people who are good at what they do. And I think that's a, a key thing find the right people and yes. surround yourself with them because you will never move out of this place to get to your next great thing that you have your eyes set on. If you cannot find the right people, train them and trust them, right? Hold them accountable and just let them do it then. Let them do it. And they're going to make their Absolutely. own mistakes just like you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, we're like, oh, they keep making mistakes. I'm like, so did you, like, so did you, you had to learn. So like, don't give them your most important client on day one, right? Like, right. like sort of baby step them in. You know, the other thing I do is I respond to all of my newsletters. So I have a, I have a huge newsletter list. It's, 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 you know, I've got a, you know, 47% open rate. Like I, people read my newsletter and I always ask questions and sometimes I get like five responses and sometimes I get 500 responses. Like it's just, there are some messages that hit better than others, but all those newsletters go into a little folder. And then, as I mentioned before we started recording, I fly a hundred thousand miles a year. Like I, 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 I spent the total of um, two actual weeks of time on airplane. So that's like awake for whatever, again, I'm not great at math, but whatever seven times 14 times 24 is. So I spent a lot of time awake on airplanes, but I'm usually pretty exhausted. Like I'm usually flying home late at night after a speaking gig or it's early morning. And I'm just, that's not my gold. That's not the time where I am creative and I'm, 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 I'm innovating and I'm, I'm bouncing ideas around and I'm writing or I'm, re I'm, 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 uh, rehearsing my keynote. Like it's just garbage time. So what do I do in the garbage time? I respond to all those newsletters, not because I think my readers are garbage, but because it doesn't need a hundred percent of my brain. It needs like 15% of my brain. So I get to, I do the stuff that I probably shouldn't, I probably should have somebody else respond to, but I feel like if I write a newsletter, somebody reads it and they take the time to respond to it. I owe them the respect of engaging in that conversation. Like that, I think is, that's a good deal back and I forth. Like that's a good, right? Like it's I like, I, I, I am honored by that. And so my behavior should reflect that but I do it on an airplane when it's nine o'clock at night and I'm flying home across country. And, and, and also my emotional tank is low. So sometimes it fills me back up. So I take the 10% stuff that I shouldn't be doing, but I also put in like the last 10% of my time. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, gosh, so much good advice so far. And I want to kind of step through some of the things that you talk about in the book that yeah. will really help CEOs move forward. So, you know, we, I think we all vehemently agree, right? Being a CEO is hard. You wear many hats. You've got to focus on what you're really good at, get the rest of it peeled away. We've got to slow down. We've got to really appreciate those moments that were great so we can have more great moments and not just focus on the things that weren't so great. But let's step through some of the things that you really advise leaders to do. Yeah, sure. Um, where do you want to start? 
<laughs> well, let's start with, you know, here you are and you've had one of those moments of, oh my gosh, I, I just did this really good thing. Like you mentioned, you're on the plane, the book was great. Yeah. But then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I was only number two. What would I have to do to be number one? So when, yeah. you, when you're at that moment, like, What's some advice, you know? Yeah, so I think the first, like, okay, so when we're in these moments, we have this tsunami of emotions that come at us, right? And some of it's like pride and joy and excitement. And some of it's like terror and anxiety and imposter syndrome. And so when I found myself in Wonder Hell, I went about interviewing a hundred different glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic medalists, startup unicorns, CEOs, activists, uh, artists, like everyday people like us. And I learned that the first thing that they did is they embraced their ambition. They were like, you know what? It's okay for me to want more. Like, that's totally cool. Because what happens, and, and, and as somebody who was in executive search, when you interview for a job and you don't get it, you have to go through the process of actually putting yourself in the role of the person who has it. You have to wear the clothes of that role and speak in the voice of that role and, and answer questions in that role. And so throughout the process of preparing for it, you've envisioned yourself as that person. It's hard to unsee that version of yourself once you've seen it. And so for the people that I interviewed, the first thing that they did once they realized that they had this bigger ambition inside of them was that they got okay with the fact that they, they wanted it. They got okay with that. And, and that seems like a kind of easy throwaway thing, but it's actually pretty hard because we spend so much time in this imposter syndrome place. In, I call it imposter town that we don't think we belong. We go, well, I haven't done that yet. But what these people did instead is they said, I haven't done that yet. And they saw it as adventure and joy. They saw it as, as, as promise. Right. So it's it, it, because they were able to do that, they were able to inhabit the I haven't it's not that I haven't done it. It's just that I haven't done it yet. Part of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what happens, too, is when we have these moments where we want something more, like you said, those emotions all start flooding in like, oh, I don't deserve that or oh, that would make my sister look bad because I'll be so much better than her or my mother told me not to shine because I should just blend in or whatever all that stuff is from your past, right? Even though we don't even realize it, it's just because rushing in, right? Yes. And we have to be able to just clarify in that moment, I want this and that is okay. Yes. And I don't want it just because I want to be better than or whatever we think, you know, it is. Of course, it's selfish reasons. We're selfish beings. We wouldn't still be alive if we weren't. We have to take care of ourselves. And we just need to sit with it and note it. Yeah, I do want that. Now, all this past success I've had, how can I use it, right, to capitalize on that? So let's go there next. So yes, I recognize I do want it and I feel good about wanting it. I had to work a little bit to get to that place, but now I feel good that I want it. What do I do next? Well, so then you're like, well, now I, I, I do want to go for it, but I don't actually know how. Now I'm filled with doubt. There's uncertainty. There's anxiety, right? So we dealt with the imposter syndrome. Now we're like in doubtsville. So the, the thing that I think is interesting is that uh, old cars used to come with this thing called a governor that would, would stop the engine from pushing too much, like the gas pedal couldn't push too much gas into the engine. So it would only go to a certain, it would only go to a certain speed. So like, even like, even though the car might be able to go to 150, it'll only go to 110. 
Because if you go to 150, you're going to get in an accident or the car engine's going to burn out and we're all going to die. So the governor was put there in the car to stop people from being stupid. I think our brains have the same governor. That's like, don't do the big thing. You might fail. Don't try too hard. You might not work out. Like, don't run for the sun. Like, it's, you know. Or you don't deserve that much happiness and that much success. So I'm going to govern you back. Right. Let me like, just like maybe, maybe try smaller first. Like just, and so we have this governor inside of our head that access this limitation, right? This limitation. And what the second thing that the people that I spoke to taught me was that they, they learn how to renegotiate their relationship with these emotions. And what they were able to say is, oh, because there is promise and also pressure. There is joy and also anxiety. There is um, uh, potential, but also uncertainty. It's okay to have both of those things. They said they're not limitations, but in fact, invitations, because they were able to see their wonder hell, not as the governor telling them to like throttle a little bit back. They were able to see it as, as an invitation that they were on the right track. They were able to see, they could renegotiate the relationship with these emotions, not just as necessary evils that we have to like swallow down and push down and push aside and like grit ourselves through this moment. But in fact, these are just signs that we're on the right track towards what we want. Yeah. Helpful, right? Because even though they may not feel good or seemingly might be deterring you, if you can settle into them and go, oh, yeah, okay. Yes. Which brings us to the third thing that people did um, in Burnout City, which is that they said, oh, it is uncomfortable but I can get comfortable being uncomfortable because on the other side of this wonder hell is just the next one and the next one, if I'm lucky, the one after that. So I need to remind myself that this isn't just a like, things got easier when, I'll be happier if, like I just need to get through this one stomach churning, butt clenching, fight or flight moment that everything's gonna be fine because all that does is leave us only in the hell. Like we forget about the wonder. And so like, why are you exhausted as a CEO? Why are you exhausted? Because all the sales in your company are sitting on your shoulder because all you're thinking is when I get through this deal, everything will be easier. And then we're not doing anything to take that pause after or to in, put some you know, self-care or whatever the thing is inside of our lives or to say, yeah, this is gonna be really hard, but because it's gonna be really hard, I'm gonna get these other things that matter to me. For example, I hustled my behind off to get Wonderhell off the ground even more than I did with Limitless. I don't know that I've ever worked harder in my life for anything. And I've worked in the White House. I've built political action committees. I've built my own company. I sold my own company. Like I've had some hard work in my career, right? Like I've, I've done things. I've never worked harder for anything than I have for Wonderhell. And I will tell you, I made less money this year than I made last year. So I was all over the place. I did tons of keynotes book made Wall Street Journal bestseller. Uh, I, I was on Good Morning America four times. I've been on Access Hollywood Today Show. Like I'm all the things represented by a big speaking bureau. I sold a bajillion books. Amazing. I made less money in 2023. But I decided actually just this morning, hot off the presses, I decided that rather than looking at my PL, what's my month, what's my quarter, what's my year, I'm going to start looking at it like a, like a season, like a chunk of work. So this year I made less money, but I will make way more money already. I already know what I've lined up in terms of revenue for next year, in terms of keynotes. I'm going to make more money next year 
So the two years on average together will be more money than I made before, right? So like, I think we have this very short horizon of, I just got to get through this one moment and things will be fine when really we need to look at it as like the longer term trajectory of where we're going to go. Because on the other side of this past year, I wonder how now there's opportunities to become, you know, the mindset correspondent for a national, you know, television show, right? Like there, there are these opportunities that come, which will then open even more doors. So the people that I talked to, the third and final thing is that they got comfortable being uncomfortable because they understood that this is just, this is a, not a moment we're supposed to learn to survive, but one that it's okay if we learn how to thrive in it. This is not the now, it's actually the new normal and that's okay. Yeah. I, that perspective shift that you're talking about is just so important, right? See it differently. And I guess I also want to just say right here at this moment, you are so wildly successful. Why measure it only in dollars, right? Absolutely. There's so many other things to measure, but we do get caught in that. And especially as founders, CEOs, business owners, you know, driven people, we get very yeah. caught in that one measure. Somebody asked me on a podcast uh, about a month ago, they're like, it's only November, but like, what are you proudest of this? You've had so much success this year. What are you proudest of? And I think they expected me to say, you know, Wall Street Journal, successful book, you know, launched a new this, like increasing fees and keynotes, like all the stuff. And I said, I am proudest of the relationships that I built and deepened with my kids and my husband and my friends. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, there, there were things I said no to this year because I had, you know, my older son is a, a junior in college. My younger son's about to go to college. And I'm like, they're leaving. Like they're leaving. Like there was a huge thing I could have said yes to at the end of August. And I said no to it because I don't get this time back. And I know that the opportunity will come again. I know how hard I work. I know how good I am. I know I can create more opportunity to make money. Everybody listening to your podcast right now is good. They know how to make money. That's why they're listening to this, right? Like they don't know how to make more time. That's the challenge. So, you know, uh, Jordan Harbinger told me uh, when I was interviewing for the book, kids spell love T-I-M-E. And, and I think it was Henry David Thoreau uh, or maybe Ralph Waldo Emerson, I can't remember which of the transcendentalists said, um, the cost of anything is the amount of time you exchange for it. And that, when I say that to CEOs, hits them in the heart because yeah. they're like, oh, right? Like it's not the money. We all know how to make more money. Right. I haven't figured out how to make more time yet. So I do what Dan Martell tells me. I buy back my time. I, I don't do my own laundry. I don't do my own bookkeeping, right? Like I, 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 I understand that there are things that make sense for me to do and not make sense for me to do. But those are like the little day-to-day, -day, how do you buy back time? I mean, the like, what am I willing to say no to? What opportunities am I willing to say no to on this side of the ledger, the business side of the ledger, because I want to say yes to these opportunities on the family side of the ledger. And when my kids were... Um, in, in, in elementary school, those were different things. And now my kids are in college. So everybody's yeah. going to have a different definition at different times. And it all depends on, you know, you, your, your, your partner, like everything that's going on. But, you know, I, I think, I think that we have to spend some time looking at a longer time horizon of how we judge success financially, but also mm -hmm. the puts and takes of what that means personally. Yeah, it's the moments on this earth that matter, right? And there are a lot of the moments that don't. 
but we get very caught up in them. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying about that. And we do as CEOs and as driven people need to get a new perspective on that. And I think that is a wonderful place to leave this podcast today. You've shared so much. I hope that all of our listeners will go out and get a copy of Wonder Hell. I'll put Laura's books in the show notes and I will put also her TED Talk, which we really didn't get to talk much about, but that's how I met Laura. She did a TED Talk at uh, TEDx Reno here in in, uh, 2022 and her TEDx Talk is in the top 100. It's very close to the top of those top 100. So it's really worth listening to. Uh, Thank you, Laura, so much for being on the show today. Really, really appreciate your time. Well, this was great. Thank you, Alice. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and we'll see you next week.